I want to invite everybody to stand up, please. What I want you to do is I want you to look to the people to your right and to your left and say, man, I'm glad you're alive. <laughs> man, I'm glad you're alive. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. That was fun, right? Wasn't much. It was the best I could do right now. <laughs> now, why is that important? Why is that important? Guys, I, I want you to look around at the people that are around you. Look around the room. So often what we do, we spend a lot of time uh, in our lives in rows. Looking at the back of people's heads. God is doing something different. He's doing something different. He's not just creating. This is not just a space where we get to come in and get a little teaching, stare at the back of somebody's head, and then walk away Without that connection. If it's not just all about the vertical, you gotta have the horizontal as well. It's the cross. And he's knitting us together as a family. And so, in order to even go into the scripture of what it is that the Lord is doing, we've got to grab hold of that fact first. The people that are in this room, are not just extra people in this room. The people in this room are not extras in the movie of your life. But oftentimes, that's how we approach our lives. It's my life, it's my movie, and everybody else is just an extra. Number one, there's nobody that you will ever come into contact with that you cannot learn at least one thing from. Everybody has value. Number two, it's not an accident that you're here. It's actually quite intentional. The Lord knew that you were going to be here. He knew the people that he was calling to unite church to be part of these two churches uniting for such a time as this. And so, if we can approach as we get ready to dive into the Word, we've got to have that perspective. It's a kingdom perspective. It's a supernatural perspective. And you can't be kingdom without the supernatural. <laughs> All right. If you've got your Bibles, turn to me to 1 Chronicles 13. And as Grant mentioned... Last week, guys, there was this moment. Last week. Who was here last week? Wow. I mean, do you guys remember, like, the glory of the Lord and how thick it was in this place? Do you remember? If you remember, let me hear you shout, Jesus. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people remember. That was good. That was good. But last week was very, very special. And as Grant mentioned, 
the Lord began to reveal some different things to us. You know, worship was going on. And then we stopped. And then we came up here, getting ready to transition. But I tell you, the weight, the glory of the Lord, it was like right, right here. Like I knew that we cannot just go on as planned. We stopped prematurely. The Lord wants us to engage. We shouldn't have stopped. And so, so we went back into worship and the Lord just did a mighty work. People were healed physically, spiritually, emotionally. People were delivered. It was a powerful Sunday. You know, you know what else happened? And I get the vantage point of being right here up front. There were children, even from the back of the room, that came and kneeled down at the altar and remained there the entire service without moving. The presence of God was that thick. How many people want to make sure that we always follow the presence of God and that we don't just do things the way that we want to do them because they're on a schedule? That'd be a little cheap, wouldn't it? That'd be a cheap substitute. If you've got your Bibles, turn to me to 1 Chronicles 13. It says, David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and the Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. David is getting ready to bring the ark. And he's getting ready to get the ark. And, and it, he makes that statement, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Under Saul's kingship, they were not seeking the ark, the presence of God, which is where he resided. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt and Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath Jehoram. And David and all Israel went up to Bala that is to Kiriath Jehoram that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. This is a big deal. As a matter of fact, all Israel is on, at this procession. There, David had everybody come together in unity. 
He went and he grabbed all the leaders. They were all part of this. All the people from all the distant lands. They all came. They were singing. They were dancing. They were playing their instruments as unto the Lord. This was a celebration as they were ushering the ark in. This is powerful. And why are they doing this? They're going to get the ark because Saul didn't make it a point to do it. And David, as he is taking over as king, he is going to make sure that the focal point is on the presence of God. That anything that they do would honor and steward the presence well. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand. Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. I'm going to read that again. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom in all that he had. The anger of the Lord busted out against Uzzah because he touched the ark. Why is that significant? They were transporting the ark on a cart. God, when he was giving instructions as to how the ark was to be uh, put together, there were poles that were inserted through the, uh, the holes, the ringlets on the side, and they were supposed to be carried. It was never supposed to be transported on an ark. That's something that the Philistines did. And so they did replace the cart because as we know from the stories that the, the old cart that the Philistines had, they actually used the wood to burn the sacrifice that they offered before the Lord. But as they were transporting, they were transporting it in old way. It was not according to God's law. And the anger of the Lord came out against Uzzah. And it says that the fear of God set in, settled in on David. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine? It says David was afraid of God that day. In the middle of this celebration, as they're ushering the ark in, a great day of jubilation, a great day of joy, as they usher the ark in, the oxen stumbles. The ark begins to shake. Uzzah reaches out just to steady the ark, which we know is the presence of God, and instantly he was killed. The fear of the Lord came down upon that people. 
You see, I think sometimes we get so comfortable with the ways that we've done things, even ways of man, we've devised and built up our own carts of tradition, of religion, and it's just the way that we've always done it. And so we get our celebration on, we start getting excited, that thing is being transported down, we're singing, dancing, playing our instruments before the Lord. But what happens when that thing, when we're reminded once again of the holiness of God? When was the last time you were reminded of the holiness of God? Because in this day and age, the way that we do life, we can become so passe. I love how A.W. Tozer talks about it. He says, you know, it's like we get our little pocket Jesus in our back pocket. We just carry him around. He's my chum, my little pocket Jesus. I hang out with Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy. He's my little cowboy friend. He's my little doll that I pull along with me. And that's how often we treat him when we lose sight of the fact that He's a holy God. And we are called to be holy as He is holy. Last week when we, when we were worshiping and worship came to a close and I began to make my way up, I just couldn't get past the sense of holiness and awe that we were experiencing in the room. I knew that we had to honor the Lord. That we could not move on past that point just because it was part of our schedule. That God had something else in mind. He's been doing it. We have been invited into this plan that God is doing supernaturally and sovereignly. It's not a common thing to see two churches come together. I had a pastor friend of mine... uh, He sent me an encouraging word this week, a little voice memo. And he was talking about and blessing what was happening here at Unite Church. He says, Pastor Mark and Pastor Grant, he says, it's easy to release something to the Lord when it's broken, dying, or struggling. It's easy to give it over to God when it's not what it should be. It's easy to offer up our sacrifices to God when I see that I'm about to lose anyway and I'm looking for a better option. It's easy to offer those things up to God. But what about when things are healthy? He says that is different. What you guys are stewarding is different because both of you are offering up a healthy thing and allowing it to die so the Lord can give it a new name and raise it up for His purposes. That's an entirely different thing. And he prayed blessings over what was happening here. And even as we look, as we've talked for several weeks, John 17, where Jesus is praying, That we would be one as He and the Father are one so that the world would know. And that's what the Lord began to reveal is number one, as we come together as Unite Church, here's the first thing that we've got to recognize. 
Doesn't matter how long you've been here, on the one stone side, or even on the vineyard side. Or maybe you're here and you're new for the very first time. This is the truth. Is that this is not ours. This is God's. And it's also called to be a city church for what God wants to do in the city of Nashville. This is so much bigger than ourselves. If all we see are what is going on in these walls, we miss the boat. We're missing out on what God is doing in the city and how He has uniquely called us to partner with Him for such a time as this. It's not about us. It's bigger than us. We've got to have His eyes to see what He sees. I went to lunch on Friday with a, with a local pastor friend of mine who's friends with Dr. Michael Brown. And Dr. Michael Brown was part of the Brownsville Revival down in Pensacola. He said a couple years ago he was having lunch with, with Dr. Brown and he asked him, he said, you know, what happened with the revival and why did it stop? He says, I know exactly what the reason was. He says, you know, with revival, there's three different parts that you need. The first one is holiness. The second is hunger. And the third part is humility. He says, I tell you what, we had the holiness piece down. We were holy. And we were walking in it. We were keeping each other accountable to that holiness. And he said, secondly, you know, after all those years, we were still hungry. Even more hungry than ever before for what God was doing. We didn't struggle with holiness or hunger. But I'll tell you exactly what it was that crept in and caused this thing to die. Is we stopped being humble. We started looking around at the people. We started looking at the different classes that were taking part. You know, it was the different ministries. You know, what was happening at the revival night after night. That teacher began to believe that they were the ones. And then there was the ministry school. And it's all about the ministry school. And then they started feeling that way. And on and on and on. He says, we lost the humility. And the whole thing died. I submit to us as a church, as Unite Church, as the Lord has brought us together so sovereignly for such a time as this. I believe that our approach is to be one of we don't want to touch the ark. We want to steward well the presence of God. We don't want to put the presence on a cart. We don't want to do that. We don't want to use other means. We want to do it God's way. We want to be surrendered to God's purposes. His expectation, His heart, to see people the way that He does. To steward His presence well. 
to recognize that God wants to do something in the earth, in the here and now, right here in Nashville. And it's not an accident that any of us are here. You are an important piece. We all are. And what my prayer is and our prayer is, is that even as we go forward, that we become very good stewards of the presence of God. That we follow what He wants. And we don't make things about ourselves. Agendas. Those, those things all have a place. But it's, it doesn't take first place. And so, that was the phrase that when I reached out to Grant the other night, I said, Grant, I just sense in my spirit that, that we need to hold on to this thing loosely. We, we need to steward well and, and actually not touch it. That Unite Church doesn't, become a place that just has all the fingerprints of man all over it. But it's got the fingerprints of God where only He gets the glory and credit. You see, Jesus said that if He is lifted up, He will draw all men, all people unto Himself. Our main agenda is to lift up Jesus so that He can draw all other people to Himself. That's our main thing. Let's lift up Jesus so He draws everyone to Himself. Amen? That's good. You know, the, the thing about the ark is that uh, it was never meant to be carried by something that was made by man. It was meant to be carried by something that was made by God, which was the men. And so we don't ever want to, to find ourselves where we're doing things in order to, to make God's presence show up. You see, the thing about the presence of God on this side, the right side of the, New Test of the Bible, the New Testament, instead of the left side, is that God's presence doesn't rest in an ark. It doesn't rest in a temple. It rests inside of us. The arks are sitting right next to you. The temple, the most holy of holy places. They're all around us. God's design is that his people be people that carry his presence. And so when we talk about stewarding the presence of God, what we're saying is, yes, to create an atmosphere in this room course. But it's a much larger call. We're called to steward his people. We're called, we're called to steward the people of God that he's sending to us. The people in this room, the people watching online, the people in our home churches around the city, those are the people that are the arcs. And we must be careful how we handle the arcs of God's presence. 
So what we're talking about is we're talking about having honor towards one another. We're talking about recognizing the fact that the Holy Spirit of God rests inside of each of us. Several years ago, I, I, was, uh, I was on social media, and I was getting angry, as you do, on social media. And I was getting angry at people that I knew and angry at people I didn't really know. And most of them were believers, and uh, I felt like most of them were stupid. And so I was getting angry at these people that I knew. And I was actually, like, rehearsing in my head. It was consuming me. It was really sick. It was ridiculous. And I was rehearsing in my head all of the things that I would love to say to these people to put them in the place. And I had this experience because I, I guess I was, you know, I was on my way to sleep, and so I was closing my eyes just as you do, going over all of the things you wish you would have said to people. It's very healthy. Don't do that. <laughs> and I'm laying there, and I have this picture that the Lord gives me, and, and it's, it's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus like you would think of Jesus would look like. And he was upset. His eyes were fiery and angry, and he, and he points at me. And he says, be careful how you speak about my bride. And I felt the fear of the Lord. And I noticed in this picture that his eyes were a bit above me. So somehow, as you do in pictures and visions, you tur I turned around and I saw that it was actually the accuser of the brethren behind me, whispering those thoughts into my ear. And I was in agreement and alignment with the of the accuser of the brethren because that's what his job is all day long. He roams back and forth, seeking whom he may devour. And at that moment, he was devouring me. We have to be careful how we talk about his bride. We have to be careful how we treat his bride. We are called to steward his presence. Jesus demonstrates this. The kingdom of God, it comes. And, and as we said, the, this, the, the seedbed of the kingdom of God is unity. Well, then the, the tracks that the kingdom of God run on, as we see through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that it is honor and compassion. Jesus was moved with compassion. The thing I love about the scriptures is that they reach us on our levels. Yes, there's more. There's always more in them. But, you know, the, the, the Gospels talk about Jesus, his emotions, 24 separate times. It references that he felt things, which makes me feel good. We don't, we don't want to check our emotions at the door. Jesus experienced everything that we experience. And out of those 24 times, the most often mentioned is the emotion of compassion. Jesus was motivated. He was moved over and over and over by compassion. When he outlines his ministry in Luke 4.18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to recovery of the sight to the blind, to set liberty at those who are oppressed. And Jesus accomplished this through compassion. We see in uh, Matthew 15, 32 through 33, 
It says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowds because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desperate place to feed such a great crowd? And Jesus makes something out of nothing. And he feeds those that are in lack. He ministers to the poor out of compassion. Matthew 14, 14, we see it says, When he went ashore, this is Jesus, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Jesus feeds through compassion, he ministers the gospel through compassion, and he heals the sick through compassion. Matthew 20, 34, it says this, And Jesus, in pity, which is the same word used throughout the others as compassion, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. Blind eyes were opened through what? Compassion. In Luke 7, 13 through 15, it says this, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bear, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus raises the dead with compassion. It's not how loud he was speaking. It's not all of the things that you would expect to do. It's compassion. Jesus was motivated. He was driven. He moved in compassion. Towards who? Others. His whole ministry was towards others. And then he says this in Matthew 9, 36 through 38. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He commissions us to go in compassion. We are called to be a people that moves towards people in compassion. As I've taught over the years of people of how, how do we pray for the sick and how do, how do we see the kingdom of God come, we have one rule, and the one rule is that the first and foremost thing that we do is we love the people we pray for. We love the people we pray for, and then you know what happens? Even if they don't get healed at that moment, they're loved. If the goal is healing and we miss the mark on healing because we have no control over how the kingdom comes or when it comes, but if the goal is healing and healing doesn't happen, then it's a loss. But if the goal is love and healing happens or it doesn't happen, we can always love. And the kingdom can always come because it runs on the track of compassion and honor. We are called to be a people who love. We are called to be a people who love. You see, it's his harvest. This is what the scriptures say. The Lord of the harvest. So he's the one that's been growing it. He's the one that's picking it. And he's the one looking to see who he can bring it to that will steward it well. Are we going to steward 
his harvest well. And how do you steward his harvest? You steward it through love. Love is a a flippant term. I love tacos, and I love my wife, and I love my kids. But those don't all mean the same thing. We have such a myopic view of what love is. We, we, We don't define it well. And so we don't understand what it means to love. We're in a move of God. And you may not recognize it because sometimes a move of God can happen and, and it can happen without us recognizing it. The scriptures talk about that. But it's clear that the Lord is doing something. Each week it seems to be gathering more and more steam. It seems to be building. And we've been told over and over again by people that we haven't asked that the Lord is doing something here. The Lord is doing something amongst us. And the call is to steward his move well. And all of us sitting in here are called to steward this move well. And the way that we steward it is we love the people that he sends. Now before we love the people that he sends, we have to love the people that we're sitting next to the people that we wish he would send away. (laughs) To send to somewhere else so they can love them. But we're called to love the people that he's already sent, unfortunately. And that means that we treat one another as though they possess the literal presence and spirit of God. Because the scriptures indicate that they very much do. You know, we're cavalier with how we talk about God, as Mark mentioned. We say things about God. We, we, we put ourselves in positions that we ought not to put ourselves in. Too often, we, we, we react and we, we speak, and there's a, there's a lack of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. And so we're cavalier with how we talk about God. We were, we were driving uh, last night to a service that we were uh, leading in, in Clarksville, and we were listening to this worship song. It wasn't one we sang up here, but it was this worship song about how we're going to put our crowns on his head. I don't know if you've ever seen God, if you've ever felt like you're in the presence of God, but I was sure I was going to die. There was no way that I could put a crown on his head as though I was the one worthy to put a crown on his head? Who do I think I am? I mean, even imagine it. He, he bends down and, and I crown him because he deserves my... This is God. So in my self-righteousness, I was getting angry at the song. I tend to get angry a lot, I guess. <laughs> Note to self. And then it hit me. You know, he actually let us put a crown on his head. He stooped down and he received the crown of thorns. That's the crown he let us put on his head. 
Not my crown. This is filthy. The God of the universe stooped down and let us shove a crown of thorns into his scalp to mock and to beat and to spit on it. That's the crown he takes. And if God can do that, we can do that. He's modeling what it looks like to love He's modeling what it looks like because loving people has nothing to do with the people. While we were still sinners. We had no goodness about us. And yet, he allows us to mock him. To receive the crown of thorns. To be crucified for us. This is love. Paul talks about it in in 1 Corinthians because we we need to have a biblical view of what love looks like. We're to be shaped by what the scriptures say. This is why nothing is lifted higher. No word of knowledge, no inkling, no prophetic word. Nothing goes beyond the word of God. It is our plumb line. And the reason is, is because I don't trust myself. I don't trust you. I trust the scriptures. I see in part and I know in part. I'm thankful for the word of God. And so we're to be viewed and shaped and formed by the word of God. So this is what Paul tells us love looks like. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. But have not love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. We love the gifts here. We want more of the gifts. But the thing about gifts is that they're easy. They're free. That's the word gift. What's difficult is the fruit. The fruit takes time. It takes cultivation. It takes repentance. It takes discipline. The gifts he gives. He says he gives them without repentance, which blows my mind. And so we love the gifts, but we value and cherish and look for the fruits. Then he says this, If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So not only do we put love ahead of the gifts, we put love ahead of sacrifice. You know he doesn't desire sacrifice? He desires obedience. And some of us are walking in a position of sacrifice that he hasn't called us to because we're running from the obedience that he's asked us to do. Don't don't bring your sacrifice. And when it comes to honor, 
When it comes to honor, that is what he's called us to do. And so if you're serving or sacrificing or gifting without the honor that it should be predicated upon, stop it. He tells us, don't bring your gifts to the altar if you have something between your brother. Leave it. Run from it. Do whatever you can do to make it right. And it starts here. It has to. It's got to start somewhere. And so I know Mark and I, we don't want to see gifting. We don't want to see sacrifice. We want to see obedience to what the Lord has called us to. And first and foremost, He's called us to love Him and Him alone and our neighbor as ourselves. Those are the greatest. So Paul says, love is patient. That one stung. I'm not good at being patient. And it's kind. I'm not good at that. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. There's very little things here that I don't do. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, that's Jesus, by the way, when the perfect comes and he returns, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three But the greatest of these is love. We want to be a people of the future. Because the kingdom of God is coming. And it's coming and there's more to come. And so when we stretch out and the kingdom of God comes in that moment, it's the future of God's rule and reign coming and resting on earth through Jesus Christ. It's that future that's coming here now. And so as a kingdom people, we're always people of the future, of the eternal. And if you want to operate in the eternal, what Paul says here is that the only way that you can do that is through love. Because out of everything that we can do in the kingdom, it has to come love. Love is the only thing that will last. It's the only thing that will be here when he returns. He won't be very impressed with how well we can operate in his gifts. He won't be very impressed with our sacrifice. But love will be the note that continues to play throughout eternity. And if we don't get it now, it's going to be difficult on us to get it then. We can't treat people caustic. 
We have to season our words with love. We can't believe the worst in things. We have to believe the best in people. We can't assume the worst. We have to assume the best. And when people step on our toes, we have to give them a hug. When they take our shirt, we should give them our jacket. When they ask us to walk a mile, we walk too. This is the way of our master. This is how we follow Jesus. If you're not doing that, you're following something else. He's always walking towards the broken, the unlovable, the untouchable. I say all the time to people who ask, how do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? Is the initial evidence, you may have heard this, of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues? To which my answer is typically, tongues, pretty easy to fake. Love your enemy? If you love your enemy, I know. I know, because you can't do that on your own. You can't love your enemy unless the Holy Spirit of God is resting in you. Because that's miraculous. And we want to be a spirit-filled church. A spirit-filled church looks like a church that loves their enemies. Don't dance around. Don't show me your gifts. Love your enemies. And then we'll dance around. And then we'll show our gifts. Because he's moved by compassion. And listen, this is the key. Once we figure this out, you're going to begin to see the effectiveness of your prayers, the clarity of the words that you hear, the activity of the kingdom. That's going to increase exponentially. Because the kingdom of God runs on the tracks of compassion and honor. And this place will never be the same.